When we come to chapter 3, we have this question of what should you do when your conscience condemns you? Uh, certainly, as we look at different people throughout history, we think of some of the, the famous Christians of the past. Um, Augustine, for example, was greatly convicted of his sinful youth and turned to Christ. Martin Luther was plagued by a guilty conscience and found no relief from it in the Catholic Church. Even in more modern times, even though the story is probably somewhat exaggerated, we have the example of someone like Patrick Henry, who, who seems to have been bound by conscience to oppose tyranny. Um, and perhaps in our own experience, we have this question of our conscience condemning us and a sense of overwhelming guilt, and what should we do about that? There are uh, people today who will talk about real guilt and, and false guilt and guilt for different ethnicities and all of these other sorts of concepts. So how do we put all this in a biblical framework? I think the answer is to recognize that the conscience, as we've seen before, acts as a tool. It has a set of guidelines that it uses to evaluate all of the situations that we come into. And so when it activates and when it condemns us and when we have that sense of guilt, we, should do, we would do well to pay attention to it. So, it can accuse us, condemn us, and make us feel guilty. I like that quote by John MacArthur. The conscience may be the most underappreciated and least understood attribute of humanity. Psychology is usually less concerned with understanding the conscience than attempting to silence it. And so... Um, I think that that is a problem in society today. If we feel bad about something, our, our typical response is when you get that engine light on your car. You ignore it or you try to get it to go out. Um, recently, I had that pop up on my car. So what did I do? I pulled out my handy tool, I plugged it in, I cleared the code because I wanted to see if it would come back. But that's what we tend to do. The conscience triggers and we're like, all right, let's, let's make it be quiet. Well, what happened? The code came back three weeks later and wouldn't go away, even though I kept clearing it. Um, for one, that gets to be a hassle, and for two, it's showing there's some kind of problem. The problem was there was a sensor that on a 15-year-old car wears out and needed to be replaced, so I took it over to the shop, they replaced it, and the light hasn't come on anymore. But if we ignored it, what would happen? Well, that particular sensor lets the engine monitor whether everything is firing properly and if it doesn't do its job you could get the wrong sort of explosion in your engine and seriously mess something up. The same thing happens with conscience. If we try to silence it just because we feel guilty, which is sort of the default response in our society, then clearly we're going to have problems. Um, and, and I think that this is an important thing to remember. If you rightly understand how holy God is and how sinful you are, your conscience will rightly condemn you when you sin against God. And I think that the reason that conscience takes us by surprise sometimes is we forget those two things. God is immeasurably holy, and we are unknowably sinful. It's just this huge contrast. And so, of course, our conscience is going to condemn us when we sin. And we sin repeatedly and constantly, and unexpectedly, and in all sorts of ways. So then the chapter goes into, if you are someone who does not know God,
how can you have a clean conscience? And maybe you have someone that you are giving the gospel to, and they're just, I feel guilty, you know. I have this sense of guilt, you know, all these sorts of things. What is the solution to that for them? Jesus said in Matthew 9, 2, your sins are forgiven. So when he says that to someone, what does that actually mean? It means that God has really and actually forgiven that person. Remember the story of the paralytic? Jesus says to him, and um, I don't have Matthew 9 in front of me at the moment, but there's a parallel account, and I believe it's Mark or John. Jesus says, do you believe in me? So that you know that I have the power to do both, I'm going to both forgive his sins and cause him to rise up and walk. And that's something that no human being can do. There are people who will tell you that the priest can do that, that some sort of shaman can do that, that some, any other human being can do that, can say, you are fine, your sins are taken care of, go on with your life. No human being can do that. But God can. And what's the reason for that? The reason for that is, who have we sinned against? We've sinned against God. Now, we sin against other people, too. But we've sinned against God, and so God is the one who has to offer us that forgiveness. Um, turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, so we can see the larger context here of verse 14. The author of Hebrews keeps making this point that Jesus is superior to the Mosaic system of sacrifices and priests and so forth. The first the ten verses basically say the priest would do the same thing every year and regularly and offer sacrifices. In contrast, verse 11 of Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We looked at this previously, but I think it's a good passage for us to keep in mind. Think about life for an Old Testament saint. I've violated my relationship with God in some way. I've lied, I've, I've cheated a fellow Israelite, whatever it might be. So I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm going to offer a sacrifice and the priest is going to declare that sin atoned for by the death of that animal. And then I sin again. And I have to do it again. And over and over and over again, there would have been this reminder of their sin. Sometimes we think about the temple as a place of beauty. Think about the volume of animal sacrifice that went through the temple. It would have been a place more like a a butcher shop or a slaughterhouse or something like that. Uh, when it says that the, the, uh, the animals being a, um, a sweet aroma to God, we tend to think, oh, you know, it's like the smell of a steak cooking. But, but think about that. It's not always a pleasant smell. 
in the context of what it was that they were offering up to God. But what was it? It was a reminder of sin and the consequences of sin and the need for atonement and forgiveness for that sin. And Christ offered a once-for-all payment for that sin so that we don't have to go day by day to the temple to offer sacrifices, to have a temporary cleansing of our consciences. We can have an ongoing cleansing of our consciences based on the one-time work of God. Going back to this idea of unbelievers, uh, one of the authors lived in Cambodia, and he just went through all of the different ways that the people around him were burdened with guilt. Some of them had committed murder. Many of them had killed their babies. Many had committed sexual sins. Many uh, cheated on their wives and then brought uh, various diseases home. Many destroyed families through adultery. They stole. They defrauded the poor of poverty. They took advantage of the weak. They've hated people. They've, harmed ma they've hired magicians to try to harm people. And they've worshipped idols and demons and materialism and all sorts of other things instead of God. That describes us. That describes our culture. Maybe not to the same degree. You know, we weren't part of the Khmer Rouge and those sorts of things, but we have committed sins against God. How then could those sins be dealt with? How then can we have forgiveness of those sins? God loved the world in this way that he gave Christ so that if we believe in him, we will not perish. And what would be the reason for perishing? Because we are condemned by God so that we would not perish but have eternal life. And so God, for the one who trusts in Christ, looks at our sin and counts it as paid for in Christ. And so, do you guys experience this when you talk to unbelievers? Do they have a sense of guilt? Sometimes. I think the reality is that whether they would admit it or not, everyone has a sense of guilt. Sometimes we try to pass it off as, as false guilt. And I think that it's probably better for us to think of it instead of as false guilt, rather that sometimes we can be guilty about things because our conscience is wrongly set up. But sometimes people will try to pass off as, as guilt that sh they shouldn't experience. Um, things that God considers to be sin. And so I think we have to be very careful because sometimes people say, oh, no, I feel guilty about this. And we want to make them feel better. And so we're like, uh, let them feel the weight of that sin. Help them to see that the hope and the deliverance from the weight of that sin and guilt is not found in themselves, is not found in making myself feel better about myself. It's not a problem of of self-esteem or affirmation or whatever else. It's an issue of, I've sinned. I know there's a God. I know God is angry against sin. Have I dealt with it before God and before other people? So then we think, okay, now I'm a Christian. How many of you, once you trusted Christ, felt more guilty than before you trusted Christ? Okay, Why? Why do you think that would be? Okay, you learn more. What else? What else? The Holy Spirit. Okay. What else? Okay. Yeah. So, 
good. So we know more of what's true, and that adjusts our conscience. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and He adjusts our conscience, and all those things coincide so that we say, I didn't realize this was sin, or I knew this was sin, but now it really bothers me that I've done it. So, Christians are surprised, sometimes discouraged, that it strengthens. And so we would tend to think, if I'm making progress in holiness, then I'm going to feel better about myself with regard to my sin and my relationship with God. But, uh, going back to Paul's point, there is an illustration. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Go to Romans chapter 8. So Romans 7 is this internal struggle, this battle. And then verse 8 is a good reminder of where we stand in Christ. Romans 8 and verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs, heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Paul sort of keeps revisiting these same themes in this middle section of Romans. This idea of sin, forgiveness, guilt, our connection with Christ, um, this battle between the flesh and the spirit, the impact of our thinking on all of these things, and the effect that all that has on the way that we live, what we do on a daily basis. And so, there's this question of, if we have the Holy Spirit, there's a change in our thinking, there's a change in our actions. So if we don't have this um, shift in the stirring up of our conscience, what's at least one possibility? If we say, I've trusted Christ, and yet nothing happens with our conscience, what's one possibility? We're not saved, okay? 
What's another possibility? Okay, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, so sometimes we think somebody's going to get saved and then everything's going to change all in a moment. And we know that that's not true. There should be some signs of life. There should be some signs of growth. But this can be a shorter or a longer process depending on how you are, when Christ finds you, and a whole bunch of other factors. But the reality is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And so it helps us to, he helps us to know what it means to follow God. And especially verse 13, I think, is just as important as verse 14. By the, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sometimes we look at this like a... My shirts are getting worn out. I need to buy some new ones at some unspecified point in the future. As opposed to, I'm drinking poison and I need to stop right now. And so I think that that change of attitude is something that has to really grab a hold of our hearts and minds so that we realize that sin is deadly, sin is dangerous, and we have to war against it. So, when it says in Jeremiah 31, which we won't turn there, uh, God promised to the Israelites that there would come a time when he would write his law upon their heart. There's a sense in which that's true for every person. There's also a sense in which... Um, that looks forward to a day when it's not the external commandments that God gave to Moses that was in the forefront of their minds, but rather a perfect alignment of conscience and the work of the Spirit and even God's presence right there before them that would produce obedience. How do we continue this work of recognizing sin and hating sin and putting off sin? Obviously, that the Spirit comes and dwells inside of us. That's a change at the point of salvation. How do we continue the process, though? What do we have to do? Okay, yeah, we have to, we have to think about the things that God has said. Along those lines, I would certainly never discourage anyone from reading the Scripture every day. I would say at the same time, it is just as important, if not more so, that we are thinking about the truth of what it is that we know of Scripture. Because it's possible for us to read the Scripture as sort of an academic exercise or as a ritual or something like that and then not think about what we've said. Kind of like what it says in James. I read it, I set it aside, and it had no impact on the way that I live. Now, it's not an either-or. It's not meditate on Scripture or read Scripture. It's both, right? We should be thinking about Scripture and knowing what it says but as we do that, we have to then act on it. And then this is where that illustration comes in. So we start out at this point, and we have this idea of, of time as we grow in Christ and our knowledge of God. But the problem is the trend line of our change and the trend line of our knowledge, there tends to be an increasing gap between those two things, right? So we know more and more about who God is as time goes on, hopefully. But sometimes it takes us longer to change, and that change is not like directly tied to how much we know about God. So why is it that someone that's been saved for a really long time might potentially even have more of a stirred-up conscience than someone who's just been saved? Because of how much more they know about God and how much more they realize what they fall short. So we could potentially look at the example of Paul. 
Paul called himself the least of the apostles, the least of the saints, the foremost of sinners. So we could then say, well, I'm just going to have a guilty conscience because my living out what I know of Christ is never going to catch up to my knowing of what Christ is like. But the reality is, 1 John 1.9 says, we should still strive to have a clean conscience. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us from our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so just because you've known Christ for a long time doesn't mean you should stop or get discouraged or give up on the process. We have to keep pressing forward in um, confessing our sin, repenting, continuing to turn back to Christ. Turn over to uh, 1 John 1, 9, because I think this is an important, important passage for us to glance at for a moment. This is why I think that we have to be careful about secular sources of advice when it comes to spiritual matters. Uh, He highlights in verse 8, we have the response, which is sometimes advocated to say, well, what you did wasn't wrong at all. Okay? So we deny that we sinned at all. Or, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we defend it. Well, you can call that sin, but what I did really wasn't wrong at all, so it's okay. And so, in connection with those two things, I think that we have to recognize that we have to admit, I sinned, and I can't blame it on everyone else. Now, do... People around us make it easier or harder for us to sin? Yes. Do other factors make it easier or harder for us to sin? Yes. If you're exhausted, it's very easy to be uh, irritable or, or um, have no motivation to do the things that you know you're supposed to do, and so on and so forth. Does that then mean it's okay to be angry or it's okay to be lazy? No. Does it mean we have to work especially hard at those points? Yes. So, we have to recognize that sin is mine, and I am guilty of it, and I need to admit it and turn from it. We also need to recognize that instead of calling sin by a variety of labels that are extra-biblical, we need to recognize that sin is what it is. If someone has a problem with stealing... We shouldn't call it kleptomania. We should call it theft. Now, there could be a variety of reasons that somebody steals. That's what they watched everybody around them do growing up. That's what their friends do. That's some idea that they've gotten looking at some sort of media. Whatever the reason is that they think that it's okay to do it, it's still sinful, right? Or, sometimes people who struggle with being drunk, we call it alcoholism. But it's not a disease. It is a series of choices that produce habits in us that become such a default response that it's almost indistinguishable 
and seems out, out of our control. But it's still something that we have to say, if God says this is sin, I have to put it off. What about something like, you know, homosexuality? People will say, that's just who I am. That's just a part of who I am. And again, it's one of these things where it starts out through family influences, through media, through whatever else someone gets in their head, this is how I should be. The more that you act on that belief, the more it reinforces it for you. But the reality is you have to bump up against what Scripture says and see that God says this is wrong. What about something like lying? We'll say, well, you know, that person just is a habitual liar. Well, if God says it's sin, we have to, we have to put it off, right? And that's where conscience comes in. And part of conscience is admitting that I'm the one responsible for sin and calling my sin as sin, and then we can take it to God and say, I've sinned, forgive me, he gives us cleansing. But if we're going to say it's somebody else's fault, if we're going to not call it sin, we're not going to get cleansing. We're not going to find forgiveness because we haven't dealt with it before God. Um... Some other time, there's a, there's a really helpful diagram in a book called um, The Dynamic Heart and Daily Life. And uh, the author of that book drew a diagram where he shows you've got uh, your, your, um, your thoughts, your desires, your uh, actions, your will, and how all those things coincide. And then it shows, like, here's your, this within the context of your, your physical body, because that's how we act out all those things and it's influenced by people around us, and it's under God, and we see how all those things fit together, but the reality is we still have to take responsibility for our sin and choose to turn away from it. As we keep going here, I think it's again important for us to recognize that it's on the basis of what Christ has done, and we, we think that perhaps we would like God to be someone who overlooks what we've done wrong. Grandparents can be good at this, you know? And then, uh, then they send them home with parents, and that's complicated. But, uh, oh, it's okay, you know, it's no big deal, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes we think that that would be great if God was like that. He just sort of ignores when we do things we're not supposed to do. But the reality is, we want God to be faithful and just, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done, and it ties it in there to 1 John 2, 2, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. There's a big um, argument about what that means with regards to God intent, God's intent of who He means to save. I think the verse is simply saying, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and He's the propitiation for anyone else. He's the only way of propitiation, I guess would be the best way to put it. And so we need Christ to have cleansed us on the basis of his work. So then we can come before God through Christ, according to Hebrews 4.16. So Jesus can purify us. And we sing about this in some of our songs. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. But you go on in life as a Christian, and you, you know all these truths, and, and you find yourself repeatedly struggling with a particular sin, and you might say, well, I'm just going to give up. 
What can I do? I've tried over and over and over again. I've asked God for help, and I don't seem to be having success. When it seems that it's time to despair, what then should we do? Hebrews 10.22 says, We have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. We have to be reminded of the truths that just as God forgave us in the beginning on the basis of Christ, He continues to forgive us on the basis of what Christ has done. And, connected with that, sometimes there gets to be a bit of pride. I shouldn't be doing this anymore because I'm better than this. And we instead have to have an attitude of humility and recognize, like it says in Galatians, when you come alongside someone else who's sinning, do it humbly. Why? Because if we come with an attitude of pride, we're very prone to sinning ourselves, whether it be in the same way as the person we're trying to help or just in the context of trying to help that person. Why? Because when I proudly say, I have been a Christian for 20 years, I shouldn't do X sin anymore, we both deny the power of sin and we have too much confidence in our own strength and not enough recognition of our need of Christ and the fact that, as Paul says in Philippians, he has not yet arrived, and so he keeps pressing on. And so we have this tension. We can go to the one extreme of just being so overwhelmed with a sense of guilt that we say, I'm going to give up. I, I, I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried. I'm just going to give up. Or we can go to the other extreme and just say, well, I'm doing great, and I don't have anything I need to worry about. What's the response to this extreme? The response to this extreme is, what it says in Hebrews 12, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus bore up under the weight of sin and never cracked. Think about something like lifting the piano. Which takes more strength, to pick it up for five minutes or to hold it for three days? And that's just a, the start of the illustration. Jesus went his whole life and never sinned. He not once gave in, and all of us have given in to sin more than once, many times, perhaps even today. But Jesus can help us because he has not given in to sin. So on the side that says, I'm overwhelmed with guilt, I'm just going to give in, recognize that you need to keep fighting. On the side that says, I'm okay, there's nothing I need to worry about, be careful of the danger of pride, because it often precedes sin. The chapter uh, comes toward the end here, where um, he quotes from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And um, there's this, this accusation. Apollyon accused, you almost fainted when you first set out, when you almost choked in the swamp of despond. You tried to get rid of your burden the wrong way instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. All this is true and much more than you have failed to mention. Christian agreed. But the prince who I am now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. 
Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country, for there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. And then uh, Bunyan writes in another book, Satan is loath to part with a great sinner. What, my true servant, says he, my old servant, wilt thou forsake me now? Having so often sold thyself to me to work wickedness, wilt thou forsake me now? Thou horrible wretch, dost not know that thou hast sinned thyself beyond the reach of grace? And dost thou think to find mercy now? Art thou not a murderer, a thief, a harlot, a witch, a sinner of the greatest size? And dost thou look for mercy now? Dost thou think that Christ will foul his fingers with thee? It is enough to make angels blush, says Satan, to see so vile a one knock at heaven gates for mercy, and wilt thou be so abominably bold to do it? Thus Satan dealt with me, says the great sinner, when at first I came to Christ. And what did you reply, says the tempted? Why, I granted the whole charge to be true, says the other. And what, did you despair, or how? No, saith he. I said, I am Magdalene, I am Zacchaeus, I am the thief, the harlot, the publican, the prodigal, and one of Christ's murderers, yea, worse than any of these. And yet God was so far off from rejecting me, as I found afterwards, that there was music and dancing in his house for me, and for joy that I was come home to him. The language is a little bit unfamiliar, but I think the sense of that quote is very true and biblical, that when, as the song says, Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. If our hope for a cleansed conscience rests in ourselves, we have no hope. Because we recognize that Satan's accusations are true. And yet if our hope for a cleansed conscience rests in Christ and His perfection and the forgiveness that He offers when we come humbly and continually forsake that sin, then we find mercy. We find help. We have a high priest who goes between us and God, who endured and, and resisted that sin without ever once giving in, who can uh, give us strength, who, as it says in Hebrews that there are these crowds of onlookers who see us in our journey of faith and they have arrived and we're not there, but we see them and we see most of all Christ having gone before us and we say, that's my hope. That's my help. That's how I can have a clean conscience. So if you have someone who doesn't know Christ, and I trust all of us here do, but, but if you have someone who doesn't know Christ, What's the hope that we give them? It's not ignore your conscience. It's not, oh, it's okay, because it's not okay. It's sin. It's wrong. We shouldn't say it's all right. We should humbly acknowledge, I sin too, but here's the forgiveness that I've found. We should point them to Christ. For ourselves, whether we've just trusted Christ or whether we've been following Him for a whole bunch of years, when we despair that our sin will ever be gone, or when we're tempted to pride because we think we've arrived, or whatever else, what's the solution to all of those problems? Again, it is Christ that our conscience would be cleansed and forgiven and under the control of the Holy Spirit and all of those sorts of things because Christ is the one who is only able to cleanse our consciences. And so that brings us to the end of the chapter. So I've done a lot of the talking. Any thoughts from all the things that we've been talking about? Give you guys an opportunity to comment on any of those things.
Yes. Yeah. Right. Maybe. One other quick thought that some of the things you were saying made me think of. Sometimes we look at our lives and past sins and say that's the thing that defines us, whatever it might be. Like, let's just take an easy one. I used to steal, so I am a thief and I will always be a thief. And I know that that's like the, uh, at least I believe it is, like the the Alcoholics Anonymous kind of idea. I, I am and always will be an alcoholic. I think we have to recognize that we have certain sins that are easier for us to commit, but I think we also have to have hope that God can help us to overcome those. The sin that ruled our lives in the past doesn't have to be the thing that defines us going forward. And so there is hope alongside the reality of a lifelong struggle. So, All right, anything else? Okay, well, we're at, oh, Paul, yes, go ahead. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we can have a clean conscience in your sight, whether that's because we come to you for the first time trusting in Christ for salvation, or whether we've known you for uh, varying lengths of time and continue to see your faithfulness to forgive and to cleanse us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider these things even this week. We pray for the service. Uh, to come in a few minutes, that we will be encouraged from your word there as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.